Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 1.16, Arrival at Plymouth. For the last two episodes, we have focused on learning about who the Pilgrims were, looking at the issues that caused them to leave both England and Holland, and seeing the other things that drove them on. We have followed them through their plight, such as losing the Speedwell, and seen much of their congregation bail out and remain back in England. We have seen the decision to ignore the original patent and settle in Cape Cod instead of down near the mouth of the Hudson. And based on this decision and the growing factionalism between the Strangers and the Lighteners, we saw the decision that was made that there had to be some kind of a formal agreement between the two groups, agreeing that mutual cooperation was going to be a necessity. And this is the basis of the Mayflower Compact. With the compact in place, the Mayflower passengers held an election to decide who would be the governor of their new colony. One of the leading Latiners and the organizer of the trip in the first place, John Carver, was elected to this role. That is a Cliff Notes version of what we've seen happen so far. Now, however, it is time to get the passengers off of the Mayflower and onto the ground. This week, that is what we are going to be focused on. Specifically, we are going to be looking at that initial period that the Pilgrims found once they got off the Mayflower in what would become Plymouth. We are going to look at the issues that came up, the conditions of the time, and we will see how the Mayflower Compact functions in reality. Now, before we get into the arrival of Plymouth, I do want to go back a moment and try to establish a timeline for all of you. Many of the events here took place in a very short amount of time, and I'm going to go ahead and lay that out. The first time that the colonists spot the Cape Cod coast was on November 9th, 1620. The attempt to make it to the mouth of the Hudson took place somewhere between the 9th and the 11th of November, because we know by November 11th, the Mayflower was anchored off the coast of Cape Cod. Well anchored off the coast, the colonists aboard the Mayflower drafted the Mayflower Compact, and it was in those same days that Carver was elected as governor of the colony. This means that things with the compact are taking place over a course of days rather than a course of weeks, months, or years. On November 15th, the first people from the Mayflower made their way ashore. There are a couple of important things to keep in mind at this point. Recall that the settlers had no clue what they were going to find on the ground. While it is still two years before the massacre in Jamestown, surely by this point the pilgrims were going to be aware of the occasionally aggressive actions of local Indian tribes. This is further illustrated by the fact that the Pilgrims had at one point tried to get John Smith to join in on their expedition. Smith had jumped at the idea to return to North America. However, these plans quickly fell apart when the Pilgrims actually met John Smith. John Smith, as we've already seen, was just really not the easiest guy in the world to get along with. His personality and those of the Pilgrims just did not mesh. The Pilgrims worried, probably rightfully, that inviting such a strong personality into the colony was going to cause nothing but problems for them. The primary concern with Smith is that a combination of his knowledge and personality created a situation where he was going to be in a position to easily take an almost dictatorial role over the colonists. After all, there is little question that the Pilgrims would have been in a position where they were going to have to give an undue amount of power to Smith. He knew the land. He knew the locals. He knew the struggles. Wanting to avoid giving Smith that kind of power, the decision was made that he was just not the right guy for the job. 
What is unclear, however, is what kind of warning Smith would have given about the local population. After all, he had never actually met this specific group of Indians. Despite that fact, however, we also know that John Smith was not worried with things like, you know, telling the truth. He would have been more than willing to fabricate whatever would have best suited his needs. So it at least leaves an interesting question of what would he have warned the pilgrims about the local tribes? At the same time, keep in mind that we are still a couple years away from when he would publish his General History of Virginia, with the 1622 massacre still being several years in the future. So the tide has not yet turned completely against the Powhatan Confederacy. That being said, however, Smith would have already been relatively skilled at dealing with the Indians and would be aware of, at least through stories, the dangers of what happens when relations with the Indian tribes sour, as we saw happen in Jamestown during the Starving Time. With Smith out, the Pilgrims turned to Captain Miles Standish. Very little is known about Standish prior to the Mayflower. In fact, about the only seemingly reliable information that we have about Miles Standish is that he was in Leiden sometime in the late 16-teens. In terms of what his real-world experience was, or in response to the question over whether or not he was a mercenary, those remain unclear. Either way, the job of defending the new colony fell onto the shoulders of Standish. On the first trip on the land, Standish took 16 men along with him, including William Bradford. The men carried with them muskets as well as some light armor. Of that first group to go ashore was Stephen Hopkins. Hopkins had been brought along on this trip due to his previous experience in Jamestown. Hopkins made his first trip to the New World in 1609 aboard the Sea Venture. And looking back now, I don't believe I ever explicitly mentioned the Sea Venture by name, though we did talk about it. Aboard the Sea Venture is the new governor of the Jamestown colony, Sir Thomas Gates. If you'll recall from episode 1.9, Thomas Gates was traveling to Jamestown in order to fill in for the always sick Lord Delaware. Of the nine ships that left for Jamestown, one of them sank and another ship, the Sea Venture, ended up getting shipwrecked after it ran aground in Bermuda. You may also recall that the ship that got stuck in Bermuda was the ship that had Gates aboard. Gates would finally arrive in May of 1610, by which point the starving time had happened and just about the entire colony was either dead or dying. Hopkins had gotten a front row seat for all of this because he had too been aboard the Sea Venture. This also means that Hopkins was one of the more experienced among those in the New World. Hopkins was the only passenger along who had any real-world knowledge of the struggles that came from colonization. Hopkins had remained in Jamestown until 1614 when forced to return to England due to the death of his wife. Hopkins would have been in Jamestown for the First Anglo-Powhatan War. However, do recall that while skirmishes did happen, the First War never really becomes much more than that. Hopkins would have certainly known the stories, and he would have seen the aggression of the Powhatan people, however. Hopkins would have also understood the tenuous nature of the relationship between the tribes and the settlers. This information would have been critical for the pilgrims during those early days after landing. It took only a short while after landing for the settlers to spot their first group of natives. After walking approximately a mile following the landing, the settlers came into contact with a small group of Indians. The Indians that spotted them wanted nothing to do with the English and just as quickly retreated back into the woods. The English tried to follow them, however, this proved difficult. The English were wearing armor, were traversing over unfamiliar sandy soil, and did not know their way around the woods. 
On November 27th, a second more substantial exploration mission was undertaken under the command of Captain Christopher Jones. This trip saw 34 of the settlers head inland looking for a suitable place to settle. By this point, the most pressing issue the pilgrims were facing was the winter that had begun to settle in. Suddenly, all that time sitting in port was coming back to haunt the pilgrims in a big way. By the time that the pilgrims set foot on their second expedition, temperatures were plummeting and snow had begun to fall. This put pressure on the settlers to pick a location as quickly as possible. The longer the delay, the more danger they found themselves in. As snow piled up, the decision was made that there was no time to explore and they needed just to get off the boat and make camp. A temporary settlement was established at a place aptly named Cold Harbor. As the majority of the group hung out and did what they could not to freeze to death, the rest of the group went out and tried to find somewhere better to settle. At least initially, the plan was to try to find some more corn, and at the same time figure out where the Indian tribes were. As far as corn goes, that first expedition that had left the Mayflower had actually found, and stolen, some corn. The pilgrims, much to their benefit, quickly figured out the importance of not trying to force their own crops to grow, but rather planting whatever grew natively. At the same time, Standish remained interested in trying to find those Indian populations. After all, we know the group that had set out with Standish originally had found corn that was still edible. Likewise, Standish was still leading the first group that had stumbled across a small Indian population that had fled back into the woods. Standish remained focused on trying to figure out where these people were. For Standish, one must assume that his interest in finding the local tribes was twofold. Ideally, he probably did want to make some kind of contact. It makes sense that he would want to set up an amount of trade with them and hopefully get them to help provide food. Recall that in Jamestown, this had been the plan initially at least and had been rather successful in those early years. The second motivation was to understand where the Indians actually are. Well, preferring to set up trade and hopefully extract some food from them, should the Indians be hostile knowing their location is critical? The last thing that you want to do when you have a potential hostile force is not know where they're located. Having an Indian tribe nearby but not knowing the actual location is a recipe for an ambush. And it probably did not help that Standish and his men kept finding signs of the settlement, just no people. What Standish likely didn't realize is that the Indian tribes were nomadic. During the winter, they would move inland. During the summer, they would return to the coast. This means that all of the abandoned settlement sites were likely the summer settlements. Well, out looking for the Indians, Standish and his men did stumble across a grave that appeared to be the location of a French burial site. This must have brought more questions into the minds of the settlers. Who was the man buried here? Well, there were signs that the French had been there. It's not clear who the body actually belonged to. And why were they there? What encounters did they have with the local Indian population? And most importantly, was that interaction the cause of their deaths? All of these must have been relatively daunting thoughts for the new settlers. By this point, growing desperation was making the Mayflower passengers get over any qualms that they may have once had against looting from the Indians. On board the Mayflower, conditions had begun to quickly deteriorate. People were beginning to die. On December 6, two pilots from the Mayflower, Robert Coppett and John Clark, took a group south. Among the members of this group, you have Bradford and Standish. On the trip south, the group does come across a group of Indians who, again, quickly flee into the local woods upon being spotted. Deciding to go after them, the pilgrims land and disembark. Immediately upon getting off their boat, the first order is to build a small fortification and settle in for the night. 
During the early morning hours on December 7th, however, the settlers would have their first encounter with local Indian populations. Suddenly, those in the fort found themselves under attack from a barrage of arrows. The pilgrims were quick to return fire with their muskets, and for the next while, a small battle took place. So far as I can tell, the pilgrims were impressed and probably a bit terrified of the barrage of arrows. However, I don't see any evidence that anybody on either side was actually killed in the skirmish. Certainly, Bradford doesn't mention anybody dying there, and Bradford writes of this encounter portraying it as an English victory. More likely, nothing probably happened on either side. However, there is something to be said for not getting slaughtered, so I'll go ahead and give Bradford a win on this one. The encounter did, however, make pretty clear that Cape Cod was, in fact, a hostile place. Trying to reach the area known as Thievish Harbor, the Pilgrims continued to see the weather get worse. A few days after that encounter with the Indians, the Pilgrims found an acceptable harbor. After a day of exploring, they deemed that this was the best place to set up shop and settle down. It has been roughly a month since the Mayflower first arrived in the bay. People were cold, sick, and beginning to die. Well, Plymouth was far from the perfect site. There were at least no navigable rivers to take them inland if need be. However, the harbor was shallow and that made it difficult to bring ships directly into it. Plus, following the encounter a few days before, there could be no doubt that hostile Indian forces were nearby. Now, as a note, let's talk for just a minute about Plymouth Rock. Yes, there is a giant rock, and yes, you can go see it, and yes, you can get an awesome picture. And sure, it's totally possible that the pilgrims stepped on the famed rock when they got off the Mayflower. It is also possible that nothing at all happened there. Seriously, there really isn't any evidence that that rock had any importance whatsoever. But hey, due to its size, it's a pretty good bet that it was at least there at the time. Either way, though, Plymouth Rock is in fact just that. It is a large rock located in Plymouth that may or may not have been stepped on at some point by those getting off the Mayflower. So sorry for ruining your summer vacation. Before moving on, I want to take a minute and look at the area around Plymouth. Why was this scene as the best place to settle in their current situation? Well, some level of pragmatism should be seen here, and just getting people off the Mayflower, it isn't like life off the boat was going to get that much better. After all, it is now late in December, and the Pilgrims were beginning to see firsthand what a New England winter looked like. If getting men off the boat was enough, why not settle sooner and get working? Obviously, there was something about Plymouth Harbor that made it a more acceptable option than other places that they had looked. William Bradford would write fairly little initially of the decision to settle in Plymouth. However, here is what we do have. On the 15th of December, they weighed anchor to go to that place that they had discovered, and came within two leagues of it, but were fain to bear up again. But the 16th day, the wind came fair, and they arrived safe in this harbor and afterwards took better view of the place and resolved where to pitch their dwellings. And the 25th day began to erect the first house for common use to receive them and their goods. Okay, so that really doesn't tell us a whole lot. However, despite this, there are a couple clues that we can work with to indicate why Plymouth was the chosen landing site. First, it was a relatively defensible position. Right off the shoreline, there was a hill rising up that gave a good view of the surrounding area. One source mentions that on a clear day, you could see the tip of Cape Cod, which was nearly 30 miles away. And as we learn from Obi-Wan Kenobi, when engaged in a battle, having the high ground gives an unmistakable advantage. This hill would later become a perfect site for a cannon, 
which would provide a nice set of defenses for the young colony. In addition, there were several freshwater springs that were quickly found in the area. Recall that this had been a major problem in Jamestown as that brackish water would cause so many problems in those early days. The Pilgrims, however, did secure a fresh water source so they were able to avoid that unfortunate fate. One of the major advantages of Plymouth, however, is that the land was already largely cleared of brush. In fact, while no structures were found still standing, it quickly becomes clear that there had been human activity in Plymouth. That explains why the site had been previously cleared. The Pilgrims quickly figure out that this means that there was Indian activity in the area. None of this really comes as a surprise either, as earlier exploration to this general area had shown that there was a large Indian community that was living throughout this entire area. However, this brings up a very critical question. Where were they? In fact, Plymouth appears to be completely devoid of hostile tribes altogether. Yet, that doesn't really make sense based on what we just talked about, as there are clear signs that Indians had cleared the land. Soon enough, the pilgrims do begin to figure out this mystery. There were bodies. Human remains started being discovered at an alarming rate. Bodies were being discovered both buried and still above the ground. This shows how shocking the event must have been. What is now believed to have happened is that sometime during the 16-teens, disease ravaged the area. These periodic epidemics would, in future years, sweep through the area and cause widespread death amongst the Europeans as well. For the coastal Indian tribes, this is nothing short of a catastrophe. For the pilgrims, however, the catastrophe of the Indians is their good fortune. Suddenly, they found themselves on land that had already been cleared years before, was still in good condition, and was void of the original inhabitants. With the site picked out, the first job became to deal with the most immediate problems. As we have already begun discussing, winter wasn't coming, it was very much here. By the time the Pilgrims found Plymouth, we were into late December. Much of the work in settling the area would take place during January. In case you weren't already aware, New England has cold winters. I would be remiss at this point if I did not at least mention that by current standards, things were a lot colder during the 17th century than they are today. Starting around the middle part of the 17th century, what is known as the Little Ice Age began. While this would be a global event, it would have a particularly hard effect on North America. The period would last until the middle part of the 1800s. So the takeaway that we know today is how cold New England gets during the winter. Well, for the Pilgrims, it was going to be even colder. The Pilgrims were immediately facing an uphill battle. While conditions were at their worst, they had to establish their shelters. Second, they had the problem that due to their arrival time, the planting and, more importantly, the harvest season were still months away. With construction starting late in 1620, the first dwelling was probably complete sometime right after the start of the new year. The second project was to get a fortification at the top of that large hill we discussed earlier. Now, I have not confirmed this connection, however, there are reports of being able to hear Indians in the distance during the late December days. And while there were no sightings that I have found notes of, it surely would make sense that concerns over Indians in the nearby woods would have been a pretty good source of pressure to make sure the area is well protected. The original plan had called for 19 houses to be immediately constructed. However, quickly the death toll began to pick up, and instead of 19 houses, that number was reduced to just 7. Bradford writes extensively at this point about the illness moving through the pilgrims. Basically, the appearance is that everybody is sick, the question is just how bad each individual is. With illness now moving through the colony, Bradford writes of the general discontent that had begun spreading throughout the colony around this time. 
Bradford writes, In these hard and difficult beginnings, they found some discontents and murmurings arise among some, and mutinous speeches in others. But they were soon quelled and overcome by the wisdom, patience, and just and equal carriage of things by the governor, and better part, which cave faithfully together in the main. But that which was most sad and lamentable was that in two or three months, half of their company died, especially in January and February, being the depth of winter and wanting house and other comforts, being infected with the scurvy and other diseases which this long voyage and their accommodations had brought upon them. So, as they died sometimes two or three of a day, in aforesaid time, that of one hundred, and odd persons scarce fifty remained, and of those in the time of most distressed, there was but six or seven sound persons, who, to their great commendations, be it spoken, spare no pains, night nor day, but with the abundance of toil and hazard of their own health, fetched them wood, made them fires, dressed them meat, made their beds, washed their loathsome clothes, clothed them and unclothed them. In a word, did all the homely and necessary offices for them, which dainty and queasy stomachs cannot endure to hear named, and all this willingly and cheerfully, without any grudging in the least, showing herein their true love unto their friends and brethren. There is an absolute ton of information here for us to unpack. Bradford gives us the best look at what those first two and a half months in Plymouth were actually like. Bradford writes about the discontent that was quelled by the wisdom and patience of their governor. This talks to the position of Carver in the colony and the sway that he had over the settlers. As we discussed in the last episode, Carver was a high-positioning Leidener, so it isn't shocking that Bradford would write about him so fondly. What Bradford appears to be referring to here was an incident that occurred in early February of 1621. Indian sightings were becoming more common around this time, and concern began to grow amongst the colonists. Miles Standish was put in charge of establishing a defensive force to protect the well-being of the colony, and it goes without saying that the men in Plymouth were not soldiers. However, necessity required them to form a common defense of the colony. Standish, being the guy brought along for just this reason, was made the new captain of this force. The problem for Standish, however, is that nobody really likes the guy. While little is actually known of his early life, Standish may have been descended from a landowning family. Though unclear how much money his personal branch of the Standish family held, it at least appears that Miles Standish was well-educated and enjoyed reading the classics. Among the pilgrims, there was a general feeling that Standish could at times be a bit on the snooty side, believing himself to be the better of them. It, of course, didn't help that Standish was not part of the Leiden congregation, being nothing more than really just a hired mercenary. This is all a way just to go ahead and say that Standish was viewed basically as being a bit of a jerk, and was really unpopular with the other colonists. The mutinous talks that Bradford mentions come from John Billington. Billington was amongst the strangers on the Mayflower who was recruited by the merchant adventurers for the journey. Billington had begun to emerge as a voice of dissent amongst the colonists and began to openly speak out against Standish and his plans to create a fighting force. Needing to get control over the situation and recognizing the need to allow Standish to establish this force for protection of the colony, Governor Carver knew that he had to act quickly and decisively. In response, Carver had Billington's feet and hands bound in a display of public humiliation. Now, before thinking that Billington was left to die, I'll clarify that he wasn't. Carver would stop short of leaving Billington to die upon hearing from his family. Being his first offense, Carver went ahead and spared Billington's life. 
The other takeaway from this is that the death toll is now sweeping through the colony at a rapid pace. Bradford puts the death toll at right around half the company. As for exact numbers of people, this is still a subject for major debate. Some people had already died, plus there had been a birth or two. Plus, when Bradford says half the company had died, I'm not sure that a literal interpretation of this really makes a ton of sense, as there's no real evidence either way to say if Bradford was keeping a close count. He does, however, specifically mention that there are about 50 people left, so it seems like this is probably right in the ballpark. Bradford talks about the scurvy that was rampant in the colony, most of the people probably suffering from it, from before the time they got off the Mayflower. Finally, we get accounts that, despite the sickness and death running through the colony, there were people on the ground working hard to get the community established. Bradford specifically highlights a handful of people who, despite the sickness, work through the pain and managed to establish a new community. According to Bradford, these people worked tirelessly to establish the basic necessities to maintain life at Plymouth. Among those that the company lost during that first winter include men like Christopher Martin, the original governor of the Mayflower. Bradford and Miles Standish both lost their wives during the winter, and entire families had been wiped out. While there is no question to the misery experienced in Plymouth, the death toll remains below what we saw in Jamestown. And while I don't really plan to address that much today, it is something that we are going to cover more in depth in the future. While the dying does taper off, it is also important to mention that it doesn't stop right at the end of the winter. As we will see next time, the death rate is going to remain elevated throughout those early months in Plymouth. With the first winter behind them, the Pilgrims would be able to look forward to beginning to establish their colony in Plymouth. More than just battling to survive, which was really the job during that first winter, we will see the community itself begin to emerge. This community is going to develop its own unique personality as it adjusts to the challenges and opportunities presented in North America. And next time, we are going to be able to start turning our attention away from the laborious process of finding and settling, and instead to the establishment and development of that community. We have spent so much time with William Bradford over the last few weeks, and we are going to continue to rely heavily on him for a while still. With that, I'm going to give him the honor of wrapping up our episode for today. Bradford writes of the approaching spring that, The spring approaching, it pleased God, the mortality began to cease amongst them, and the sick and the lame recovered apiece, which puts it were new life into them. Though they had borne their sad affliction with much patience and contentedness, as I think any people could do. But it was the Lord which upheld them, and had beforehand prepared them, many having long borne the yoke ye from their youth. Many other smaller matters I omit, sundry of having them already published in a journal made by one of my company, and some other passengers of the journeys and the relation already published, to which I refer those are willing to know them more particular. And being now come to the 25th of March, I shall begin the year 1621. Way from them and rapidly revisions were made. Next week, we are going to move past that first winter and begin to look at Plymouth once the immediate struggles of the winter were firmly behind them. We will look at the establishment of the community and the culture that would almost immediately begin to form around it. This sense of community is going to become a critical aspect in what makes up the thoughts and philosophies in New England that is ultimately going to have a huge effect on the future of the United States, both in the short term and the long term. So I will see you back here in two weeks time and we will begin going through New England and examining the brand new culture that begins to emerge out of Plymouth. Until then, however, I hope you all have a great two weeks and I will see you back here then.